Good indeed. Each of us have been blessed with the opportunity to assemble, to gather on this evening as we are. These songs have already been spirited and uplifting, and the messages of them already have been very encouraging and moving, certainly, in regard to what is good and what is right. Tonight, as we get ready to begin our, this portion of our worship service, I would make one brief announcement reminding, or at least bringing to attention, uh, this coming Wednesday night, I have been invited to be the speaker as the, as the summer series goes on at the Willette Church of Christ over in, uh, over in Red Boiling Springs is actually where that's located. So I encourage you, please keep that effort in your prayers. I know many congregations have a, a summer series of sorts, and that particular night, Brother Dennis will be taking care of the things here in terms of the class activities Always thankful for the goodness of the brethren here and the carrying on of those activities, always done in such a very encouraging and very dramatically good way. I hope you'll be turning to the book of Philemon. It is one of the one-chapter books of the New Testament. You may be aware we have four books of the New Testament that have only one chapter in total. One of them is Philemon, one of them is Second John, one is Third John, and one is Jude. So tonight, we're going to be looking at least at some of the aspects of this little one-chapter book of Philemon. As you have already located it, perhaps, you'll be aware that that one chapter is certainly not all that lengthy. And these introductory comments will at least motivate us and bring us to a point of the beginning of our lesson this evening. I'm sure each of us are quite aware of the fact that the characters of the Bible quite often are such an almost inexhaustible depth and supply of material. You and I can so often find many lessons, sometimes on the good side, sometimes on the bad, that are things we should not repeat. But as we look at all of them, we might well just in passing mention, isn't it still an encouraging thing to be reminded of the uncompromising integrity of Naboth? We encounter him in 1 Kings 21, and yet we have an unforgettable lesson about how doing what's right may often cost. But isn't it also true that in that same Old Testament, how about Ebed-Melech in Jeremiah 38? A eunuch, but yet that doesn't take anything away from the lasting example he left of kindness and conviction in regard to assisting to take care of Jeremiah. In the New Testament, again, couldn't we mention Malchus? Peter cut off his right ear in the scene of John 18, and yet the last miracle the Lord ever did was to heal that man's ear. Doesn't it remind us that even in the throes of difficulty, the Master's extension of goodness and kindness was that noteworthy? Maybe one last example, that of Onesiphorus. What a good friend he was to Paul, even in chains, Paul was. Onesiphorus extended to him the kind of brotherly conviction and affection and that too has been a lasting imprint in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I say all that to say, when we come to a book like Philemon, we have two principal characters here, at least mentioned in the book. One is Philemon, one is Onesimus. And yet, we're going to cast a spotlight on some of the lessons we shall glean from them. And in so doing, we of course will learn much about Paul as well. As we do all of that, why don't we begin then with this opening slide that at least reminds us of the setting. What's the backdrop, if you will, of the book? Once that is clearly before us, we then will devote ourselves to a number of lessons that come our way. First of all, we learn from Colossians 4, verse number 9, that the city that is the setting of this was Colossae. 
we're quite familiar with Colossae based on the book we call Colossians. We realize it was not that far from Ephesus, really. And yet, as it existed in the Lycus River Valley, it was well known for a number of things, and yet that's not our prime interest tonight. There, a gentleman named Philemon lived. As you and I will learn a bit later in this lesson, we certainly appreciate that Philemon was well-to-do enough that he actually owned his own house. We know that because the church assembled in his house. Here was a man who opened his own domicile, his place of residence, for the congregation in Colossae apparently to meet. Isn't that an interesting reflection upon his conviction? That was long before there were church buildings. That was long before there were the niceties that you and I enjoy today. And yet, as brethren would open their houses, Philemon was one of them. Not only that, he had a slave, at least one. We don't know if he had more, but one of them who will be a central figure in this book is a gentleman named Onesimus. And I've called your attention on that slide. The name Onesimus, interestingly enough, means profitable or useful. That's an interesting name, isn't it? A name that carries the sense of usefulness or profitability. That will be very interesting. In fact, it will be the major headline in our sermon in just a few minutes. But for right now, just note the sense that goes with that name. As you journey about the middle of that slide, we thus come to realize this. Onesimus again was a slave of Philemon, but Onesimus ran away. The time came that for some reason, the text doesn't fill in all those details, but he chose to depart. And in so doing, I thought that I would share with you a map. This gives you an impression about where he came to. You may notice at the far right is the city of Colossae. And again, it was on the western edge of what we would call Asia Minor. But this Onesimus, and as much as he ran away, he didn't just travel a mile or two. He traveled almost 1,200 miles and came to Rome. How long it took him to arrive at that destination, the text doesn't say. But we do recognize this, that upon his arrival at Rome... He came into contact with Paul. That would lead us to believe that maybe it was in prison he came in contact, so it could well be that this gentleman Onesimus was arrested for some reason. Maybe he came in contact in that way, and it takes us back to the previous slide. Could I draw your attention to verse number 10? Paul here would say, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, Paul converted this man to Christ while Paul himself was a prisoner, and apparently Onesimus was as well. Aren't we again reminded of the power of the gospel? Even in prison, those who are in circumstances as perhaps dire as that was, they were openly accepting of the gospel. Perhaps day after day as Paul besought this man, urging and teaching him, and setting before him the truth of the nature of the, of the Christ. You may notice, though, as you come to the bottom of that slide, the conversion of this man is such a dramatic and marvelous truth. But now you begin to contemplate this. Paul sent him back to Philemon. He had run away previously. And in that sense, he had, of course, been freed from that which was his circumstance with regard to Philemon. But now, Paul sent him back. 
And he not only sent him back, he sent him back carrying a letter. This man Onesimus carried the letter that you and I call the book of Philemon. He had in his possession then, as he brought it back to Philemon, the very words that are written in the context of our study tonight. As he carried that letter back, why don't we now take a moment and read this book of Philemon. It's really fairly brief. Beginning in verse 1, the text says, Paul, a, men, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was unto thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Whom I, have sent by, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever." Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, and how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on my account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides." Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And that closes the book of Philemon. In the course of those 25 verses, we are ready to close that particular one, slide past our map, and make several observations that can be beneficial lessons, hopefully, for you and me in our continued service to the Master even today. Lesson number one. Let's revisit the name Onesimus. We've already learned it meant profitable, but did you note verse number 10? The text in that place again reads, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was unto thee unprofitable. Though his name meant profitable, 
Paul directly told Philemon, he was to you unprofitable before. He was to you unprofitable in time past, but now he's profitable. Now, Paul was quick to say in that 11th verse, he's not only profitable to you, he's profitable to me. And we'll have more to say about that shortly. But could we at least borrow this interesting observation? What a change had taken place at Onesimus. Previously unprofitable, now, as a brother in Christ, profitable. I've invited your attention to some of the things on that slide. That Greek word that appears in verse number 11 has to do with uselessness. It has to do with worthlessness. In that state, despite the fact that his name meant profitable, he was not. Doesn't that highlight the status of an individual without the Lord? Could we be so firm and so directed to say it this way? A person may be blessed with so many skills, so many capacities, talents, and capabilities, and yet, apart from a faithful servant of the Lord, the person's unprofitable. The individual, and might you and I take note of this, in the ancient era, those that were slaves were often extraordinarily valuable. They often were particularly selected to be slaves because of their aptitude in business. They could keep books, maybe, or they could endure or at least make note of transactions. Others, of course, were cooks or other kinds of laborers. Maybe others were particularly skilled at various kinds of woodworking. They may have had many talents. Onesimus may have been in that category. And yet Paul said he was unprofitable at that time in life. Doesn't that cause you and I to remember? There was a time before we obeyed the gospel. Regardless what accompaniments we may have had, we were unprofitable. From the standpoint of eternity, what a great change was wrought when we obeyed the gospel, when the blood of Christ washed over us, cleansing our sins, and we became into fellowship with none other than Jesus Himself. That kind of fellowship is sweet and rich and very, very moving. I would simply point out as we close that slide, that kind of idea characterizes each of us. In Romans 6, verse number 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Every one of us at one time was a servant to sin, and yet we have been freed from that and are now the servants of righteousness. And that all happened when we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that has now been revealed to us. Maybe that idea and maybe that conviction that was shared in that place reminds us of that famous passage that closes the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. It's verse 17, really, of the chapter. But doesn't it go on to say, Behold, all things are become new. You see, there was a time when things were old, and you and I were overwhelmed in the matter of sinfulness and separation from God, and yet all things in obedience to Christ have become new. Now, this change that had taken place in Onesimus, doesn't it remind us? This man ran away from Philemon, and at that time he was a slave. I'm sure you've already noticed it. When Paul wrote this letter and sent it back to him. What did he say in verse number 16? Though he may have left a slave, he's coming back like this. 
not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved. Philemon, he may have left as your slave. He's coming back as your brother in Christ. And there's a world of distinction between the two. I hope that helps us see that this issue that surrounded Onesimus, at least among other things, has reminded us of that dramatic change that happens when a person obeys the gospel. I realize the excitement and the wonderful thing it is to see an individual buried in baptism for the remission of his or her sins. And though they enter the water dry and come out wet, that is only the tip of the proverbial iceberg regarding the change that has taken place. What about lesson number two? In addition to the change that was wrought in Onesimus, you may have noted one thing that Paul rather interestingly commented as it related to Philemon. Let me read it again and then we'll make some comments about it. Verse number 13 and 14. Whom I would have retained with me. Paul said, if it were left to me, I would love to have kept Onesimus here as a helper with my efforts. But let me read on. Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing. That thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. Oh, how wonderful the Word of God is in reminding us of the significance that goes with willing service. You may have noted here, Paul rather quickly told Philemon, I would love to have kept Onesimus, but he doesn't belong to me. He could have been a tremendous aid and asset to my efforts because I'm in prison. He might well be released before I shall. And he could have aided me tremendously in the carrying out of the gospel in this region. But Paul says in verse number 13, 14, Without thy mind, I would do nothing. Philemon, you need to want this to happen. For me to just keep him and use him and claim that it was benefit from you would do no good. The closing words of verse 14 again read like this, That thy benefit, thy goodness should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. How wonderful is it that the Word of God highlights the impressiveness of that concept. God wants our service to be willing. He has never conscripted anybody to be a servant in His army. He doesn't force anyone. Oh, how He encourages and implores and invites, but He doesn't make anybody be a faithful Christian. He won't make anybody even become a Christian. But He sets before us life on the one hand, death on the other. He sets before us heaven on the one hand and hell on the other. He sets before us on the one hand, Jesus on the one hand and the devil on the other. And we have our choice. We can choose which we might wish to follow, but it must be a willing response. Some of the comments on that slide then take us to this conclusion. If you and I simply serve because it's as if we are made to do so, that service apparently isn't rendered as accountable. It is such that, you see, just as was the case with Philemon, that the service must be willingly. This isn't the only place that concept, of course, is found. 
I ask you to note a few verses at the bottom in which this is highlighted. Would you recall with me Leviticus 1 verse 3? Even in that third book of the Old Testament, you might recall that the various sacrifices and offerings were commanded, in fact, in order to, to be brought. There was the burnt offering and the sin offering and the peace offering and the meal offering and the trespass offering. And yet, in, among, in amongst all of them, this interesting phrase is found. Those with a willing heart who bring these things. God's desire was, sure, these things need to be brought, but I want you to want to offer them. I want you to have a heart desirous of communion with me so that you are ready and prepared to bring this burnt offering and offer it to me. I suppose sometimes we think that as those Israelites offer those sacrifices throughout the ages, that they may have looked upon it as mere routine and habit. God's desire for them was not to see it that way. They should have wanted a wonderful communion with God, and thus it should be their desire to ultimately be able to arrive at the offering of this burnt offering because that was the final piece that highlighted union with God, oneness with Him, and an appreciation of the fellowship that goes with that. What about today? Would you perhaps hold your finger here and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8? As Paul addressed the church at Corinth, in the midst of that chapter, there were two different comments made, each of which speaks so loudly about the matter before us tonight. First of all, may I direct your attention to verse number 3. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. Now the larger context reminds us that Paul was speaking about the congregations in Macedonia and how that they financially gave beyond their ability. That is to say, if you just looked at what they were able to give, you might have thought, well, they won't be able to give much. And Paul said, I'm telling you, Corinthians, they gave far more than what one might have thought they'd be able to. They gave that way because they were willing to do it. Look further in the chapter at verse number 12. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. And thus, isn't it beautiful to notice, God knows what we have and what we don't. And when we give to Him, sacrificially, and out of a willing heart, isn't that the clue that our gentlemen often bring to our attention right before we make our contribution on Sunday morning? In fact, turn over one chapter to 2 Corinthians 9 and listen again to how this concept is so interestingly presented. Verse number 6 says, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So Paul, even there, made note, someone might well give because they feel as if they have to. Or they may give because there's a sense of grudge if they don't. Paul said it's not the will of God that it be taken care of that way. He wants a cheerful heart, one that's happy and willing for that money or that particular matter to be used in the service of the God of heaven. That issue is parallel to our observation in Philemon, verses 13 and 14. 
And therefore, as you close that slide with me, two great lessons. What about number three? That third lesson, I've simply entitled Intercession. Christian Intercession. You may realize with me that the word intercede is a very noteworthy root word of the idea. Let's develop it like this. There is an essence in which in this we see the following. As you give thought to intercession, Paul wrote this letter directed back to Philemon, and he enjoined Philemon to accept Onesimus back. You and I, I'm sure, could easily imagine if a slave ran away in the ancient Roman Empire. History records for us that the Roman Empire had many, many slaves. In fact, they probably far outnumbered the actual number of Roman citizens. Especially that was true in the city of Rome and in other of the major cities. And yet... I'm sure you and I would easily regard the punishment that could be directed toward a runaway slave was extensive. You might remember with me, slaves had very few rights. They could be punished almost at will, at the will of the master, and that would even include death. I wonder how Onesimus will be welcomed back. What kind of attitude will Philemon have toward him? It might be easy to suppose harshness. It might be easy to suppose grave difficulty. But in light of all of that, look at what the Apostle Paul did. He, in fact, directed his attention, extending himself on behalf of Onesimus to beseech Philemon to welcome him back, not as a slave. Now, it's true he may have carried on duties as a slave, but he was asked and encouraged to welcome him back as a brother in Christ. Christian intercession. There may be occasions when you and I realize how important such a thing as that can be. For that reason, on the slide, I ask you to note the following. Paul went even beyond that. You may have noted as I read it, Paul said, if he has wronged you in any way, put that on my account. Now that at the very least suggests maybe when Onesimus ran away, he had taken some things from Philemon for his journey. We don't know that for sure. Paul did say, though, if he's wronged you. Maybe there was some sense in which right before his departure, he had done something that brought some kind of injury to Philemon, his master. Paul said, regardless what that was, you put it on my account, and I'm telling you, when I come, I'll repay it whatever amount it is. You and I know that Paul wasn't wealthy financially, but he here states that I give you my word that I will repay anything that he owes you. Christian intercession has taken a rather large step, hasn't it? It wasn't just a letter. It was now financial in character as well. Maybe one last thing to observe There is certainly a dramatic issue here, isn't there? And it's something that would be wise for you and me to know. You and I are admonished in Matthew 5 verse 9 to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You may know of a couple of brothers in Christ 
or a couple of sisters in Christ, like those mentioned in Philemon, or rather Philippians chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche. Maybe you and I then could be the critical element to assist those to be brought back to peace, maybe interceding. Maybe you and I could be the ones to take the initiative and say, I'd like for all of us to sit down and have a meeting. Just in Christian love, talk this out. We'll pray about it. We will look at verses of Scripture which might have a helpful bearing on this matter, and we will seek peace between the two of you and certainly between you and God. Christian intercession. Sometimes, even in other circumstances in life, that can be valuable. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and rather rebuked them because there was a lacking of this kind of thing. Certainly one of the things elders would be in a position to do. Remember, these men are seasoned. They're well-educated and schooled in the Word of God. They have a heightened sense of those attributes which would go with worthiness concerning these matters. And in their place is wisdom. They certainly would be well in a position that they would be seasoned and able to listen to the issues that might arise between brethren and offer their wisdom and their counsel to help ensure that that's taken care of and that that issue becomes a thing of the past. Certainly in light of this Christian intercession, aren't we admonished in Romans 14, 19 to be those that pursue and seek peace? As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men, Romans 12, 18. What about lesson four? In addition to these, we come this time to one I have entitled to beseech or to order. You may have noted as I read it, but it was found back in verses 8 and 9. I'll turn our attention back to that pair of verses as we think about an interesting set of applications connected to this one. To do that, let me begin it, though, like this. In verse number 8, Paul wrote the, these words, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. Paul says, Philemon, I could order you to take Onesimus back. And I could order you to accept him in light of being a brother in Christ. After all, Paul was an apostle. He had seen the Lord. He fit that particular category because of the nature of who he was and that with which he had been blessed. He said, I could order you to do this by the authority of heaven. But the next verse, he says this, Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Philemon, I could order you to do this, but I won't. I will encourage it. And I tell you what, I'll even do more than that. I will offer you some considerations, some reasons, whereby you too might come to see things the way that I would hope that you would. In fact, if you look a little bit later in the book, Paul gets to the point he states it this way. In verse number 19, I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. So Paul said to Philemon, I could order you to do it, but I won't do that. 
I will urge you. I will invite you. And I'll encourage you, but Philemon, don't forget this. You owe your own self to me. Paul had converted Philemon to the gospel. Philemon was a Christian because of Paul's teaching, his instruction, the example he had set. Philemon, you owe your connection to eternity to me as well. Surely out of your conviction and love for that for which I stand, you will have a temperament. You will have an element of patience to welcome Onesimus back and do it in the way that you should. Talk about a masterpiece of Christian psychology. Paul could have ordered it, but he didn't. He rather set forward the matters encouraging it and listed some reasons for it. As you look back to this letter, look at verse 21. This one in some ways is the icing on the cake. Paul says, "...having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say." Philemon, I love you, and I know that you will even do more than what I've requested. I know that in your heart and sense of Christian attitude and responsibility, you will for Onesimus do even more than I have asked you. Quite often in our life, do you remember when maybe your parents? There was a time when whipping was in order. We all remember that. But there were times when dad or mom could make you feel about that big. Because though they never raised their hand or brought out the belt or a switch, by talking, they could let you feel how much you disappointed them. That what you had done shamed them, shamed you, shamed your name. And how that that hurt more than any whipping ever could. Because a whipping comes and goes pretty quick on the whole. And yet for days you think about the disappointment you brought to your parents and the tears streaming down their face because of your foolishness. Paul said, I have every confidence, Philemon, you're going to do more than I've even asked. May I again say, what a statement. As you close that slide with me, doesn't it put us in a position that might well be characterized like this? Isn't it true that life can bring before you and me situations, and it's not always clear the best way to deal with it. Sometimes firmness is needed. Sometimes directness is the order of the moment. The person's sentiment, the person's attitude, the person's behavior would almost demand it, perhaps in light of previous activity that they have done. And there are times the Bible is direct, and there are times that those in it very much were. In Matthew 23... Jesus was before a group of Pharisees and He rather directly said to them, You hypocrites, you are children of the devil. You convert people to your way of thinking and you make them more a child of hell than you are. Talk about firmness and directness. The Lord spared no punches. He could read their hearts and he knew that that sense of presentation was exactly what the moment called for. That's not the only time. Look at the other example I ask you to consider in Titus 1 verse 11. Here Paul was very direct. In fact, to Titus, in description of the citizens on the island of Crete, he said they're a bunch of lazy gluttons. That's very strong language. 
Probably none of us would like to be called that to the face. And yet, Paul said it's true. Maybe a third example in Acts 7.51, when Stephen closed his sermon, he said, You stubborn, uncircumcised people, always disobedient to the things of God. You and I remember what happened. They picked up rocks and killed Stephen. But he told them the truth. And so there are times when directness and firmness are the order of the moment. But isn't it true that just as in a case like this, there are times that Christian psychology, a temperament of smoothness, and a powerful dose that's much like what we've seen here would be useful. Look at these other examples in James 1 verse number 5. If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Sometimes it's not always obvious which to choose. But perhaps in the moment, we might say a quick word, asking God for some assistance. Praying unto Him for the moment of that wisdom. You recall what Solomon did when he first became king? In 1 Kings chapter 3. God appeared to him in a dream and said, Ask anything you want, and I'll give it to you. You and I recognize that even God admitted He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for military victory over His enemies. He could have asked for a superbness connected to wealth and riches. And don't you know many people on earth today would ask for one of those things? And Solomon didn't at that point in his life. He asked for a wise and understanding heart. Because I am now in a position of judge and I need wisdom. And God gave it to him. You and I need it too when it comes especially to situations such as these. Paul, in a very kind and tender-hearted way, filled with compassion, wrote the letter you and I call the book of Philemon. I have every anticipation that Philemon welcomed Onesimus back. Not as a slave... Now, it may be again that he did serve in that capacity, but he was welcomed as a brother in Christ and that Philemon acted toward him in a way better even than what Paul had asked. That's the kind of strategy that was a part of Paul's request. As we close our lesson tonight, we've been reminded about Onesimus and Philemon and Paul and some of the matters connected to the little one-chapter book of Philemon. As we close the lesson, I've just asked you to briefly note in quickness what we observed. We saw a dramatic change in Onesimus when he obeyed the gospel. We highlighted the beauty that went with Philemon's willingness of heart and service. We also cast a spotlight on the Christian intercession of Paul on Onesimus' behalf. And finally, we noticed that Paul chose not to order but to beseech and that that can be truly the best course of action in many cases. Tonight, in this assembly, it could be that someone would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation. That call is presented in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. And you and I realize even tonight what a blessedness is ours to have the opportunity to respond. If someone would wish to do that, we want you to know that Christ loves you, and we do too, and that we would wish... For all to be well with your soul. If you have conducted yourself in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord, and that's something known again to others, they need to know about your change of heart. 
And they need to know about your change of conduct and lifestyle. That's just called repentance. And we tonight would wish to make that confession available. And we would love to surround you in arms of love and encouragement. We could do that in a matter of moments tonight. If you've never become a Christian, though, wouldn't you like to join the Christian community? You join it, of course, because the Lord adds you to it. None of us have the power to effect that joining. But isn't it true that as that takes place, you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and are baptized? In so doing, you become a part of the grandest family that there is. And tonight, we could help you in that way too. If any of these things would be the need of your life tonight, we would wish to encourage you and invite you to come. While together we stand and sing.